probably not okay. But that's okay. A podcast about the intersection between mass media culture and mental health. I'm Kaylee Legrand. And I'm... Pod, y'all, bad, bad, bad. And we got P Money in the house here. What's her name? Her real name? Penny. It's P Money now. So our guests might hear a lot of jingling, uh, crashing, and scratching in the background because Tanya fed this dog Red Bull. <laughs> Didn't mean to. This is not only the most hyperactive dog I've ever met off the bat, but then you go and feed it Red Bull. It's biting me right now. That's what happens when Red Bull falls off the table. Yeah, absolutely. It's a safe environment around all of these wires and microphones we have set up. Perfect. Glass table is going down. Well, we're waiting for the dog to settle down. We're just going to hop into our third episode with... Kirsten Rasmussen. Local Toronto comedian. We got to talk about so many wonderful things. Mm-hmm. I guess sometimes from the audience perspective, comedy can often look like a hilarious, bright, I hope it looks hilarious, it's comedy, <laughs> but it looks like a bright, shiny, fun, magical world. You get to see the magic. That's the point of an improv show, a comedic improv show. Yeah. But when we sit down with Kirsten, we get to talk about what happens behind the curtain, in the green room, in the business. In, in the, the writing every, process. In the everyday life and how that job can still entail a world of anxieties and insecurities sometimes and what it's like to get messy. Sometimes being messy can be a good thing and she talks about that in ways of how using improv tools can be fun being in the mess, like saying yes and. <laughs> That's a tool. Yes and. Yes and. Adding on. We also talk about the blend and boundaries of art and life Mm. and how these tools can sometimes help you stay out of quote-unquote ugly places. Yeah, and throughout the whole discussion, she talks about ways that she has used the both um, light and dark moments of life to find her own voice in comedy. On that note, we bring you to Kirsten Rasmussen. I'm an improviser actor. I grew up in a small town in Saskatchewan. And I went to university in Edmonton, and that's where I started doing comedy with Reptify Theatre, uh, which is an improv theatre. And then I moved to Montreal, and I was a founder of Montreal Improv Theatre there. And I lived there for three years doing improv and sketch and some solo shows. And then I moved to Toronto, and I started working for Second City, and I worked for them. Well, I'm still working for them, but I did their main stage for uh, three shows. And I did a cruise ship with them, and now I'm teaching and directing and coaching trying to get on TV. (laughs) My hunch is you'll be there soon. (laughs) We are in Second City right now in one of the training centers. Yeah, they're a new training center in Toronto. Mm -hmm. What made you want to go down the path of Second City and comedy in particular? Um, I think uh, when I was in high school, there wasn't really, I wasn't really uh, exposed to any sort of comedy like that. Like the, no one in my family was a performer and um, my high school didn't really have it. There was an extracurricular drama club, but I wasn't really involved uh, until later in grade 10, I think. And I just didn't really, I just didn't really know about it. I wasn't a very happy kid, <laughs> I guess. And then, um, and then some of my friends were acting in the school play. Uh, I think actually they were one of them was a musician and she was playing it and they were like oh they need a stagehand so I ended up like working a fog machine in the show and then I kind of was like oh I like this world and then I just sort of followed that weird path and I didn't really get into comedy until I moved to Edmonton and um, all the kids I hung out with were improv kids who had done it in high school 
And, um, and I was just like, what is this? And then I started going to watch their shows, but it took me like three and a half years to work up the guts to audition for Rapid Fire Theater. And then I did and got an acting, which was great. How old were you when you auditioned for Rapid Fire? Uh, I was 22, I think. So I got in with a bunch of like 18 year old boys. So it was just me and like this <laughs> gaggle of 18 year old boys who were all louder and more confident than me. So I kind of had to keep up, which was maybe really good training ground for me because mm -hmm. I just learned to yell and be loud and be aggressive and get in there. That was like me in my auto shop classes in high school. Yeah. I was the only girl, but yeah. military father's daughter ah. came out with second girl. He said, screw it, put cleats on her and put her on the field. And oh. so I became the tomboy of the family. And oh, I did cool. like the tech stuff and the sports. <laughs> and it took me a, a while to kind of come back around to the world of entertainment and comedy too. Oh yeah. How many years yeah. have you been in the entertainment industry now? Um, I guess I guess I started studying theater and stuff at 18, so that would be 14 years now. And you you started essentially comedy when you were 22. You're mm -hmm. still doing it. Is that yeah. the one particular passion you have in the entertainment industry as far as genres go? I think it's where I feel at home. Like I definitely, I really enjoyed theater school and I still have some of my really good friends are from that time in my life. But when I started doing improv, I just in, instantly was like, oh, I'm home. These are the kind of people that I really like. They're all really different. They're all um, geeks and nerds and not necessarily about particular nerdy things like yes many of my friends love comic books but also just they're curious people who read a lot who know a lot who are thinkers who are writers and I think um, I think that I just fell in love with that world so I still like doing straight straight work or uh, dramatic work but I feel much more at home in the comedy world <laughs> I should mention uh, for our listeners that you'll probably hear some you know, dramatic music in the background or <laughs> screams in the background. As I mentioned, we're in Second City, so there's training going on in adjacent yeah. rooms. Um, you say that you feel most at home here. What is it that's comforting about the world of comedy or improv? I ask specifically because um, there are sometimes notions of, uh, and maybe this is more attuned to stand-up, but of the world of comedy being difficult and sometimes harsh. Oh, I mean, yeah, but I would say that's probably true about all of entertainment industry, whether you're doing straight work or not, or comedic work, but I also feel like you would say that in any industry you're in. <laughs> I kind of think every, every life is harsh. Life, life is, just is harsh. Life's just hard. As a rule, but I think for me, I like comedy opposed to straight theater because it's a little more like self is that the right term? Like, like people shit on themselves more, or like it's an improv show, so it, like if it doesn't go well, or if like um, there's not a lot of people with a lot of crazy egos in my world because we know that it's small what we do. Mm -hmm. We affect this one group of people in this one moment. I, I don't know. I found theater started turning me off a little bit when it was just like a little too precious, and so I loved how comedy was a little more accessible. It's true that improv um, being an art that essentially lives and dies in the moment mm -hmm. that you don't typically make reels, for instance, to send off to agents or to put on a television. Um, yeah. It's interesting that it is kind of a tight-knit community and smaller in that sense. Mm -hmm. Would you ever want to see it be bigger or more widely accepted into mainstream entertainment? I feel like it's getting that way, and I think um, because I've come from smaller communities, Toronto is huge to me. The comedy community here is huge. So when um, when I was doing improv in Edmonton with Rapid Fire Theatre, or in Montreal with Montreal Improv Theatre or Theatre St. Catherine, those people were also my best friends. Like They were also the people I hung out with, and there would be 
there was a small, just like such a smaller pool. So I actually feel like coming to Toronto, I was just like, this community is huge to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure like the little, very little time I spent in LA, literally seven days, <laughs> I was just like, oh my God, this community is even bigger. Um, so I already feel like it's big. And just even like in the last 10 years to watch how much more mainstream it's gotten. Like there's so many episodes of shows now where there's an improv episode and um, that didn't exist five years ago or 10 years ago, but now it exists. Like there's uh, a movie out now too. Yeah, there's like, a movie out, I haven't seen it yet. I haven't uh, seen it either. Don't think twice, but yeah. there's like a BoJack Horseman, um, <laughs> one about how uh, culty improv is. There's the <laughs> office one that everyone knows, but there's like uh, a Broad City one where yeah. one of her dates is an improviser, a terrible improviser. So yeah. Which they're, they're kind of just slipping in the notion of what the world's like as opposed yeah. to whose line is it anyway? Yeah. Being one of the only televised series I can think of off the top of my head that is actually based on improv, yeah. short form improv in, in that sense. But yeah. What was your experience like being on the main stage with Second City? It was great. It's, um, it's a pretty intense job <laughs> in the sense that there's no time, like in a regular theater, you would have rehearsal time and your nights off. And then you go into show, and so I think Second City is really interesting because uh, you're rehearsing all day and then doing a show at night and then getting notes. And then when you open, it's not like there's a certain amount of time and then downtime. There's just there's like a train-like energy when you are on the main stage there that doesn't seem to stop, and you never really get time to catch up on the exhaustion. So it's like accumulated exhaustion. <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't even sound like it leaves time for sleep. Yeah, there's de there's definitely time for sleep. Like once the show opens, you can sleep, but it's still like I don't know. Doing eight shows a week takes a lot of energy, um, and I was coaching. Um, I was always coaching through a couple teams, uh, the Fake Cops, and then um, uh, and then a duo that I was directing in their sketch show. And for me, like like some of my friends were like, "Why are you doing that? Aren't you exhausted?" And I was like, "For sure." And I t I think I taught a class as well with Matt. Um, but for me, it was just nice to have something else to kind of like remind my brain of the world outside of the theater mm -hmm. and then teaching was also nice as well just to kind of I find teaching can sometimes be like a confidence builder because you get in front of people and you're like oh I do know something about this world and then you can kind of take that bit back into the writing the show which can at times be um, an experience that will make you doubt yourself because you're just like am I even funny I don't have any more ideas oh no <laughs> um, so there's definitely that part that exists in there and then you know, at the best of times, you show up to the theater, you haven't had to handle anyone. Like, I come from independent uh, comedy and from doing solo shows and fringes where it's like you're out patting the pavement, handing flyers to everybody. So to walk into work, go into the green room, and then step out onto stage to 300 people often felt like a huge gift to be like, wow, they're all here and I didn't have anything to do with it. I mean, I did, but I didn't, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Bigger scale where other people are taking on those those roles, wearing yes. those hats. Yeah. Have you met? You said you've you've done a, a bunch of solo work and you've performed in many, many other venues, many other capacities. What is it like having to wear all of the hats when it goes from the writing, rehearsal, producing, managing your own show? I think I I um, in a lot of ways love that because. Um, because maybe I'm a control freak. And I also, I feel like I understand, 
I feel like with any comedian, it's like you you know you get to know how you make things work in a specific way, and so um, working with an ensemble or a director sometimes just spending time making those voices work together um, and finding the patience to do that, I guess. Um, so. For me, when I was writing my solo shows, this was in Montreal, and it was just a really great experience, I think, just figuring out what, what my kind of humor is and how I connect to an audience on my own and how when shows aren't going well, how you manage that. Um, and so it was just like a really great training ground for figuring out my voice. And then for sure, when I was working with the ensemble and directors here, it took uh, a lot of negotiation for me to be like, okay, right, I have to not necessarily compromise, but just sort of... Um, be more open to the group dynamic and I think at times I was successful with that and at times I really wasn't I would like really fight for moments that like in hindsight I was like oh I didn't really need to fight for that it was probably okay but I think that there's just that sense of me being of me thinking like I really know how I can make this funny in this moment um, and I feel really strongly about that in myself but like in those sort of moments you just have to trust like yeah but the director knows how to make or the ensemble knows how to make it in a bigger picture funny that's very rambly but yeah well but it brings up a lot of really great points like the fact that when you find something that works for you and the reason why you're doing comedy is to find that sort of joy yeah it's important to stick to your guns but on the other hand comedy is subjective and finding that funny is always subjective Mm -hmm. and traveling that path i know that for for myself um, when I first started taking improv classes, it was it was a haphazard way of me tumbling into this world. But I always, I guess, knew what I found funny before I got into the world, and I had that same sort of effect that you experience in, in the green room or in writing your mm-hmm. show. Where I'm like, oh my god, I now have to actually think about what is funny, and thus I don't know what funny is anymore, and got yeah. super scared the first time I stepped on stage to. I'd been on stage before in other theatrical productions, but um, not not like this unscripted stepping yeah. on stage with an ensemble and saying, oh, cool, we're just going to make a funny on the spot. We're going to make up this show for you, and for sure you're going to laugh. Yeah. I remember not knowing what to do with my hands. To stay on stage with my like, only focus right now is <laughs> figuring out how a human stands. Um, but you, you see that you've also you've gone from doing ensemble work to and, and improv versus sketch, also doing solo shows. What sorts of things did you get for yourself from doing a solo show? I think I, I think the I think it might have been something I already mentioned of just sort of the trust of knowing how to deal with an audience of being like I have these people in the room from 10 people to 50 people or you know 100 I guess was probably the biggest thing I'd done a solo show for um, or a little over 100 but yeah I guess that trust of just standing in front of an audience and knowing that um, that it's going to be fine and that I'm going to have them and that if I lose them in a moment I can get them back mm. and so that was always really really fun to kind of feel that journey or feel like at the top of the show it's like oh I'm working a little harder to get these people or like to notice in myself like I'm I'm in a weird mood today I'm in a weird place today so I just have to kind of rely on the fact that I trust my writing and I trust the arc of the story to kind of bring me to where it needs to go and then then there's also the days that your magic you feel the magic or whatever so I think that was probably the learn the lesson was to kind of be like no matter no matter what the show's going to happen and I'm the one who's going to make it happen. Mm. And I think that was probably the biggest thing 
that was helpful to that is just being comfortable with that and I think that was that was my most comfortable spot at Second City like the rehearsal sometimes the actual writing process would be I would be insecure I'd be in my head and then we'd get in front of the audience and I'd always be like we're gonna be fine this is gonna be fine um, so performing is the place where I probably feel the most comfortable and the writing is the phase where I'm like oh god what am I doing <laughs> because you don't have the audience right there to give you that that laugh or that acknowledgement or the response you're you're writing something it's, it's very different at least for yeah. me if you're writing something you know you don't have an immediate response or if you're putting something on television you wait x amount of weeks or for a film you wait a year to mm -hmm. see what that response is as opposed to making up a joke on the spot in an improv show and knowing whether or not it lands right away immediate feedback yeah yeah i think it's immediate feedback and then for me i also think it's conveying an idea like i think i'm really good in an improv scene at, at getting on board with my scene partner but i think outside of a scene not in a character kirsten being like i think this would be a great scene here let me pitch it to you i find that hard being like um, me, Kirsten, the human being, <laughs> has a great idea for a sketch or a scene or whatever. Let me pitch it to you. I find that that really difficult. Whereas, like, if I step out into an improv scene, I find it really easy to invite someone into whatever world I'm creating. If do you not pitch it the same way? Do you do you not? Does the team not get up and play to pitch, or do they sit and just verbally explain what it was? You look pitch like? your premise, and then you get up and play it. Okay. But I think, like, what I found was I was more successful pitching, like, the smallest amount of the premise, like, being like, this is our location, and then that's it. Um, whereas, like, some people who maybe also just play closer to themselves, I don't know, I could analyze it, but it's also just, uh, that's boring, I guess. <laughs> but, you know, I think some people are just like, this is what it is, and it makes a lot of sense. I think it's the same feeling of, like, I, I can write really well for myself. I don't know that I can write super well for other people. Mm. And I think it's because I understand my voice, um, and sometimes I find it difficult to translate that to other people. If I'm not doing it, if I'm doing it, I know that an audience will be with me, but if I'm explaining it to somebody, it's not always the same. It's not exactly how it would look if you were to just perform it. Yeah, I guess it's a different, it's, it's like your friend explaining a movie to you versus seeing the movie. Those are totally different experiences. Mm -hmm. What would you say, um, speaking about your voice and what you bring to stage, what would you say is important about the art that you bring to stage? Important? Ooh. If you think <laughs> it's important, I um, mean, <laughs> well then why are you doing it? <laughs> important seems like a weird word. I think, I guess what I bring that is unique, which is also a gross word. Um, <laughs> Um, I love how these are gross words. <laughs> I don't know. Important. I'm like, this is the reason why I like comedy, because it's not important. I mean, it's important, but it's like fun important. It's like fart jokes are important because they're funny and mm -hmm. they make us laugh. But are they important? No, of course fart jokes are Well, then important. let's bring it to a more general term. Right. Why is comedy important uh, in general, in life? For me, it's because it's a coping me mechanism. That's important because life, again, as we said, life is shitty and harsh. <laughs> so it's important to be able to to laugh at it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, but I would say, I guess, what I bring is probably just like a a, a raw a rawness. These are also things that I've been told, and um, uh, like a an aggressive physicality. Mm -hmm. And uh, you do one of the first shows that I ever brought a non improv friend to. 
because you've always been one of my favorite comedians in Toronto to watch. Oh, you were, again, a standout performer in that evening, and my friend actually said something along the same, similar lines uh, about the fact that you seemed very unafraid. You get up on stage, and this is coming from a place of, uh, she, she is, I'd say, kind of the complete opposite of, of our world, mm-hmm. of letting go and acting like a gremlin on stage because you can. Yeah. Just something that she would never do, and, and that was something that she admired that, that night in you, which was really cool for me, too, because it's something that I admire in you as a performer, too. The fact that you do, you get up, and all those shitty things about life that people don't like, people don't want to look at, and people don't yeah. want to acknowledge exists within ourselves as human beings, you seem very unafraid on stage to just pull it all out. And I think that that's, um, that, for me, is what I see as a, a, a level of importance in comedy being able to make those connections that are readily recognizable as very human sometimes ugly moments and creating a moment of release for audience members the same way that it sounds like it's a moment of release for you too to just explore them on stage yeah I think so I think I don't I don't like question on stage which is something I do so much in my real life I mean for sure sometimes you have uh, shitty shows where you're stuck in your head and, mm-hmm. you know something has pulled you out of the play I guess mm-hmm. but for the most part um, being on stage really does feel like play for me and it's the most fun I have in my life and I think once I figured that out I was just like oh I get it I get what I'm supposed to be doing here and it's this and um, yeah I I love it I had someone say to me the other day one of my students lovely students was like yeah, one of my friends saw you on stage and they, they were like, that girl is crazy. <laughs> she's she's obviously crazy. I'm like, so intense, so intense. And I, I I don't know if he was trying to compliment me. I was kind of like, I'm going to try to take that as a compliment. <laughs> because it really didn't feel like one the way it came out. But it kind of made me be like, yeah, I think I am intense on stage. I hope you took it that way because I just victoriously <laughs> held my hands up above my head as you said that. I was like, yeah, I get that too. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I just get excited to be on stage and I like it a lot. So I want to, like, yeah, I want to play and I want to uh, get into a messy scene because I think that's the funnest, the funnest thing. It's what I'm always like. Yelling at my students, like get get into the messiness of it. Mm-hmm. It's not supposed to be clean and proper. That's the play. Yeah. A lot of your physicality reminds me of um, like Kristen 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 Wig. Kristen Kristen yeah Kristen Wig. Right? Isn't it or is it Kristen? Now I can't even remember. It's Kristen. Let's say it's Kirsten. I'll re-edit my voice saying right one <laughs> as I read it off of Google uh, of <laughs> Miss Wig <laughs> from SNL. Yeah. You know, similar physicality, a, a lot of her characters that she developed, um, it seems started from just a, a tiny, simple moment of physicality. And she mm-hmm. allowed it. It sounds a lot like how you pitch your premises, like just a very simple tidbit of information and extrapolate from there. Mm-hmm. I usually come from a, the opposite. I'm super over-analytical. Like, what are all the different things that have to be, you know, if this, then that. Let's flush out the whole world. Yeah. And then by the end of it, I bore myself and sweep in. Like, don't even say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so talking about, like, this moment of not judging yourself and allowing yourself to just be in the mess of it all and yeah. play. Once I found that, um, that was that was what sucked me in and had me drink the Kool-Aid at Second City. Yeah. Uh, it was it was a super freeing feeling I found 
the sense of play, um, how does that translate into, into your life? You say that you find it a lot on stage. Yeah. Do you, do you translate that into your own life? to an extent like I find that I'm really attracted not just romantically just like uh, to friends and all that kind of stuff to people who are more playful to people who like to giggle and like to laugh and like I think about when I'm with my sisters we're just giggling the entire time or like with my niece and my brother it's like that's just how we are together that's how I like being with people um, so in that way it does translate um, I always talk with like improv students about how there's a way to be like while you're improvising, which is really open and really available, um, and to carry that into the world is dangerous. So I find like not dangerous sounds creepy, but it's like I'm not <laughs> going to be how I am in an improv class on the streetcar. Um, so I think I do like have an off switch, and it's pretty harsh. Oh. Uh, and I think that's important for me, anyways, because it's also like to be that open and that playful is draining. Like I find. Um, after a show and especially after a class just because I think uh, when you're teaching improv it's not only that you're um, emanating playfulness for yourself but you're also like trying to convince people to get there so yeah. it takes a lot of energy mm -hmm. so it's like when I'm on a streetcar on my bike after an improv class I can just feel the shutdown happening and it's just like yeah I don't want to talk to anybody I don't I don't want to play I don't want to make eye contact and those are I think there's nothing wrong with that um, yeah, but if I go for like, I find that if I go for like a week without doing a show, I get a little antsy and I can notice that I get more annoying in my regular day interactions. <laughs> you can't help but let the play start to bubble up. <laughs> yeah, and then I'll just be like, I, need, I really need to do a show. So um, yes, it affects my everyday life, but I think performing is such a big part of my life that that's one part of my life. And then, I mean, I think it does have its effects other way like I even notice in conversation like if someone's if I have a conversation with somebody in a mall or just like a friend of mine or a family member and they're constantly saying no I will notice it hmm. or I'll notice if I'm saying no to someone and I'll think to myself like why am I blocking them like in improv terms why am I blocking them or arguing with them why am I making those choices instead of um, yes ending the conversation um, so I guess it is also just a way that I kind of analyze interactions and I'll be like oh because they were being nice to ask to me and that made me uncomfortable and so I blocked them mm -hmm. um, so yeah I guess I definitely it definitely um, wriggles into my you can't help but yeah yeah it's definitely I think it's now especially because I teach so much so I talk so much about all this stuff all the time that it's just like it's definitely how I see the world mm -hmm. in a way that I don't know that I will ever be able to not see the world that way anymore it's in your blood yeah, yeah. it is different uh, even when you translate from not just from um, the world of improv uh, into your everyday life, but the kind of performance that is that, that the stage necessitates as opposed to screen mm -hmm. is also super different. Yeah. What would you say are the biggest differences you found for, for comedy, let's say, in, in specific when it goes from stage to screen? I think that's something I'm really still learning and I'm taking smacking classes right now to help with that. Because <laughs> I think when I first started, um, I mean, most of my most of my time has been in live stuff. I haven't done tons of screen stuff. So uh, when I first started auditioning for uh, film and TV, I was getting a lot of like, make it smaller, make it smaller. And that, um, I still struggle with that note in terms of like, then suddenly not making choices. So I think what I'm exploring right now is just um, finding different choices and finding, finding a way to stay as committed as I wanna, wanna be 
without pushing, mm -hmm. which I think is just, it's just a different way of learning. It's like when you're performing to a 300 seat theater, you're pushing a little bit. You're making your voice really loud or making bigger physical choices so that the person in the back row can hear you. Um, and then in front of us, front of a screen. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I just, I don't feel like I figured it out. I feel like I'm learning it right now in, in the best and worst ways. <laughs> um, but I feel like I'm also at a time where there's such great comedy on screen that it's like, I'm also learning by just like watching some amazing comedy right now, like watching Broad City and watching right now, I'm really enjoying uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Like, this is so funny. And maybe you would look at these performances and be like, they're big. And I'm like, I love that they're big. Yeah, I, I find the same thing. Um, I've had a lot of people who recommended Broken Night Night just started that. Uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. I mean, this is also mm -hmm. a lot of material that comes from writers who started with Second City or SNL, mm -hmm. Tina Fey. Um, I, there is a difference and you can tell that it's a different style of comedy. It is bigger. It's almost, maybe it's unrecognizable to those who don't know that inside world I don't have that deciphering eye comedy is comedy mm -hmm. but yeah once you see the stage and and you see people who have not come from the stage but came up through comedy just on the screen the yeah. minutiae is available to them uh, it's a lot more accessible I find than people like us who started on the stage and are constantly told bring it down bring it like through your eyes great that's the right message but just through your like what? <laughs> Stands a statue and just like, oh, my lines are right there. Yeah. 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 Uh, but those those sorts of TV shows are also, it's so attractive to me. Yeah. Because it, it, yeah, it's kind of offensive to the camera and the screen. It's a lot on the screen that you're watching. But if you're used to seeing that kind of activity on an everyday basis. I think it's so fun. And there was that show, Characters that Netflix produced as well, which I think is probably the closest thing I've seen to like sketch live sketch on like in a television series i have not seen it it's uh it's pretty great it's like is it like portland it's, yeah it's hit and miss no it is each episode is like a new up-and-comer comedian uh -huh. and then they create their own uh half hour sketch show kind of however they want i'm gonna have to watch this mm -hmm. it's pretty exciting and, and like i said it's a little hit and miss even within the episodes it's hit and miss but uh, like lauren lapkus uh has one it's pretty great and uh, uh john irving i really enjoyed his there's a lot of great ones on there um but yeah it's kind of like watching those i was just like this is the closest thing i've seen to like being at comedy bar and then seeing the same kind of thing mm -hmm. on television and that's kind of exciting that there's Sort of that Not such a huge, a huge thing, a huge leap, I guess. Well, we're starting to see some more translation with shows like Sunnyside, um, mm -hmm. which unfortunately didn't get renewed. Yeah. A lot of the roles that I'm going out for, it's like, great, either I'm cheerleader number three, and, and you have to come up through somewhere, and I get that, um, or like you can play the girl next door, yeah. or you can play the slut, or you can play now I fit into like a motherly role. But they're pretty limited roles, especially for women. Um, and then to go one step further, there's pretty limited styles of comedy that I find Toronto in particular is producing. So to be able to do what you love to do, play the kind of comedy that has become essentially a home for you, stepping into a world of film and television. Right. 
has it been easy for you? What, what oh, sorts okay. of experiences have you, um, or hardships have you seen? I think so far my experience has been quite positive, the little experiences that I've had. Um, I did a tiny role on Schitt's Creek, which was wonderful, and it wasn't the kind of character I would ever write for myself. It was a total support character. But um, being in a learning phase, I think I'm just really curious. Like when I step uh, onto a set right now, I'm literally like, are all these people doing? Like, I'm just like, <laughs> there's so many people here. So I'm just more um, excited by that and kind of like, of course I want to be excited by um, by the text that I'm doing. And of course I've had disappointments of auditioning for things that I would have loved and I didn't get. Um, but I think at this point I'm just like, I just want days on set because it is a different world and there's a lot, I think being the kind of person that I am, which is I'm really curious and I want, until I understand what the hell's going around me, I don't often feel very comfortable. So I'm just like, I just, I will, I will do any um, uh, uh, amount of different weird characters to to be there. Um, in the last little while, I think any uh, haven't had much success, but the little success I have has been with uh, kids TV, which is often for broader characters. So I found that it's not super far away from what I've done, and kind of allows for those big broad character choices, which I feel comfortable in, but. It's also been fun auditioning for different stuff, and I think actually right now is a really exciting time in Toronto, like with Man Seeking Women, with, uh, with um, uh, Man Seeking Women rather, uh, what's another, uh, like Baroness on Sketch Show, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Mr. Mr. D still going strong even though that's in Halifax, but there's like, there is all these different styles of comedy. I think it is an exciting time right now, and there is a lot of variety in what, uh, what we're seeing. It's not just a Mr. D, like you have you have that, but then you have Baroness on Sketch Show, and then you have like a Man Seeking Woman. Uh, but I'll just say that the like reading all those kind of scripts, it's like they're all comedy, they're all different styles of comedy, and so I think I think it's, it's an exciting time, and I, I feel like I'm in a place where I'm not like, um, of course I feel like shit when I don't get things, and I'm like, oh my teeth, <laughs> my fine teeth, or like uh, I'm not hot enough and I'm not ugly enough, I'm not skinny enough and I'm not fat enough. And of course, like I could spend like fucking uh, days and days ripping myself apart about all the reasons that I'm not booking. Do you do that when you walk when you walk out of a, an audition room? Um, not when I walk out. Maybe like I don't know. Maybe like the day after. Or... Like if you don't hear anything back. I guess so, or just I don't know all the time when I'm even looking at things and imagining like whatever. Of course, but I. I don't. I think that's a really ugly place to go, and I don't want to go there. I'd rather be excited about learning, which is why I think taking classes is super helpful for that, and has helped me shift from "I'm not getting anything. When is it my turn?" to um, "I'm learning. Uh, great." <laughs> is that? Would you say that that is? Um, you've talked about comedy being a coping mechanism, but are there sorts of routines that you give yourself if you notice yourself slipping into that mindset? Like, if I start feeling shitty, do I? Yeah, like, do, do you go home and have a bubble bath, or you read, or you go for a run? Do you have other coping mechanisms uh, that just to keep yourself from going down that rabbit hole? Um, yeah, I think uh, I think I love I love watching movies, so I do that a lot. Um, yeah, exercise is a big thing. I think talking to friends and family is a huge thing for me. Um, uh, I like doodling. Big Doodler. That's, I think, one of the first things I, I noticed when, on your Instagram account. And one of the reasons why I asked you to come and, and chat about all mm. your experiences. Because you started putting these incredibly hilarious pictures of your own doodles. Um, 
and they're exactly what you talk about your comedy being taking shitty things in life and putting them and they might just be honest doodles that you're writing down mm -hmm. simple thoughts but they end up being hilarious like, mm -hmm. at least that's what the way that i see it on your instagram account yeah are you doing that as a coping mechanism as well are you I'm realizing that it's absolutely hilarious <laughs> i think um i think i've been it's been a little surprising how many people have talked to me about it. And so I think that that feels nice, of course. Like people are like, these are so funny. And then I had a friend be like, um, after a little while, be like, oh yeah, uh, are you okay? <laughs> and, and like, that, this is all really great. We're all laughing with you, right? Are we, are, wait, are we laughing at you? Are you all right? <laughs> uh, but that was kind of a funny moment because I was like, yeah, I'm in, I'm in a bit of a rough spot. I'm in a transition place. And I think that that has to be okay. And I think, um, yeah, I think I've made a transition. I think for a long, uh, a long time, I tried to hide my depression and my anxiety, and um, just in the last couple of years, I think I've really been like, I can't hide it because it's spilling out into my life. Um, and then also, uh, for me, it's just like it's more material. It's more material, and I am making fun of it already. Like when I'm, uh, I'm very close with my siblings, and they they know about my depression and anxiety and I'm like, I joke about it with them and we're laughing our asses off. So I'm just like, why, why not? And I mean, there's so many people that deal with it. So why, why not make a joke out of it? So it's been really nice to have people um, comment on them in a weird way though. I like, I haven't done one in like two weeks and I think it's because people were like, they're great, they're great, they're great. And then I suddenly I had put a little pressure on myself about them. Like they have to, I have to top myself. I have to, I have to make more. And then that stressed me out and then I stopped doing them. And so like even today I was just like, wow, I, like I was doing them because they were fun. Like I love, I love drawing. I've always, I've always doodled and, and uh, made drawings and painted and all that kind of stuff. And so, and I know for me that that's a coping method for me for doing that and not, they're not always been jokes, but like this, that has, this has been a fun little re release in this kind of weird rough time. So. Uh, um, yeah, so to have people be like, that's amazing. I was like, oh, that's really nice. And then I was like, oh, the pressure. <laughs> <laughs> so that's really funny. I'm like, I need to draw something about that because that's kind of funny to me. But um, That's hilarious. That's, yeah. that's super ironic, but it's also so true about where we are uh, in terms of how we communicate, especially not, not just as artists, but as human beings. Today's day and age, so much of our communication is done via social media. Mm -hmm. And... It is very ironic that you use part of a social media platform to, uh, as a coping mechanism and as a release with mm. hilarious material that got a response in a yeah. similar way that you would on stage, but got a response and I don't know, maybe it was, was it a different reaction that you had instead of wanting more of the stage or, or instead of wanting more like you wanted the stage, it was... Uh, a, an adverse reaction to the social media. I think it was sports. mostly positive. Like mostly, I was like really, I liked, I really liked the people were. It was a wonderful surprise because I think I was just like you know, it's like sometimes when you try a sketch that you're just like I don't know this, like throwing shit at the wall, mm -hmm. and then everyone's like that hit. And I would say for me in my life, those moments throwing shit at the wall has been probably my most successful moments. Mm -hmm. um, and this was another one of those moments where I was just like, I just had. Moved one weekend. I was so stressed out. Um, 
I had gone off some medication and just recently got back on, but it was still a time where I was like, I don't want to go back on, but I was just like feeling so much anxiety that I was like, I got to, I just want to do something with it and I wanted to do something creative with it. And so I did that, threw them out online and then people were just like, yes. Um, <laughs> so it's the first way, the first experience and you get over that, that weird, yeah. like have to, have to, no, I can just do whatever I want. Yeah. And I think that's where, where I'm at now. And, and the other side of it was some people, um, like some people being like, I love those, I'm feeling this, these are great. And then some people being like, unsure of how to react to it, to it, which was also kind of interesting. Like I had another friend say to me like, why are you doing those? Um, and I think cause I think cause maybe him and I have just never spoken of my anxiety or depression. Like um, uh, uh, he's a friend, but not a close friend. And, and that really threw me off. So some, sometimes people like putting it out in the world has also felt a little dangerous at times because um, I put it out in a way that to me is safe. I'm making a joke about it, which mm -hmm. I think it's like that idea of like being bullied. Like if I make a joke about um, having teeth like a rabbit, then you can't make that same joke about me, right? Um, so in that same way, it's like I'm making a joke about my anxiety. Um, and, and I didn't necessarily mean it to be an opening door to a conversation. But in some places it has it has been, and in some places that's been a great conversation, and in some places it's been an awkward conversation where I'm just like, oh, I don't know that like, like I yeah I was willing to make a joke about it in a very safe and comforting way, mm -hmm. but I don't know that I like I don't know that I want to bear my heart to you about it or like, I don't so that's been an interesting thing to negotiate like even with this conversation where I was like I don't know that I want to talk about it in a vulnerable way I'm like comfortable making jokes about it, mm -hmm. um, but do I want to? like and that's been a case-by-case -case situation of being like yeah some people have brought it up to me where I'm like oh yeah I just am like yeah I'm doing it because it's fun it sounds like a very natural reaction if somebody poses that question why are you doing that of course yeah. you're gonna ask yourself yeah and then question whether or not you should I mean yeah you, you yeah. didn't question yourself when you went to put it online the first time no so it's just like it sounds like that is a, a bit of a barrier that is just presented to you on a platter it's like here take this there you go why are you There's, doing this yeah. yeah and it's like oh why am i doing i'm it? wanting to make art and then mm -hmm. oh that art was connecting people connecting to people so do i make more because of that or do i make more because it makes me feel good and someone's like make it a book you, you should get a lit agent and i'm just like yeah, that would be great, but I uh, commercial <laughs> sell it, sell, sell, sell. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, of course, I would love that. I would love to uh, make money. <laughs> but artists um, making money? What? That's not why we do what we do. <laughs> yeah, but I'm like, I don't know. Right now, I just am dealing with my anxiety, and if um, if in a couple months I have that under control, then maybe I'll be like, I'm gonna make something of this. But that's not where I am right now. I'm just kind of enjoying the awkward conversations I'm having with people. Yeah, enjoy the journey. And if it turns into a million dollars, you just kind of have to accept it at that point. Yeah. That is I, an interesting question though, between you know, the whole why, why you are doing it. Is it for you? Is it a release? Is it for them? Is it your audience that you're getting the response and, and because they're having a connection? Or no, is it, is it for, and this is a general question, yeah. but, uh, or is it because it's a job as well? It's like there are three different avenues for I think in general that you can ask yourself why you're making art essentially right well I think um, I think if I was just doing it for myself I wouldn't have sh shared it I wouldn't have shared it on social media like I think I am pretty I try to be pretty conscious about what I put out on social media um, and I, like it happens sometimes like I put something political about the uh, a pipeline 
uh, NBC that just happened, and it took me a long time to think about it because I don't often post political stuff. Um, I do when I feel really passionate about it, and it makes me really think because of my persona on social media is usually like fart fart piss 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 joke 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 um <laughs> so if i do anything besides that I, I i do put a lot of thought in, into it of kind of like um so when i was first doing these anxiety things i was kind of like okay even when i was first putting them out even though it was kind of throwing shit at the wall i was just like am i comfortable with this what do i want and i guess the hope with anyone putting art out there is to think um someone was going to Someone mm-hmm. is going to see this and, and connect with it, I'll make them laugh or like, um, and, and I think I started realizing that some of my, some of my stuff that I was putting out, even my tweets in the last year have gotten a little more personal, have, have been the things that people connect with. Like I had a tweet that I really was like, oh, I shouldn't write this, but I was like, it's funny to me. And it was like, um, in case you were wondering, all of my exes are in happy long-term relationships. So now go back to your day. That's not the exact wording, but it was something like that. Mm-hmm. But I was like, oh, that's a little too, like at the time that I wrote it, I was like, that's a little too uh, personal, more more personal than I usually put out there. Mm-hmm. And the response that I got was people were just being like, ah, yes. <laughs> because it was also, they felt it more personally. Yeah. They took it more personally. And so it, if it's going to get a laugh, it'll get a harder, more personal laugh. Yeah. So I think that's kind of made me be curious of going down that line a little bit more and being like, okay, well then maybe I can joke about uh, my anxiety and my depression in a way. Also, that makes me feel, um, this is another word I hate, but a little more powerful about it, a little more in control about it than instead of like, I'm drowning in my own anxiety or depression right now. It's like, no, I'm making fun of it and I'm using it in a way that um, it's fodder for me. And that's, um, that makes me feel a little more in control of it sometimes so that's so that's good why don't you like the word powerful um <laughs> i don't know because it sounds pretentious <laughs> i feel powerful when i make my <laughs> about my depression um but yeah i think i'm still figuring out that line because uh i i, I like dark comedy um but i feel like there was that I've been to comedy shows where someone's talking about their mental illness and I'm like, this isn't funny anymore. Mm. Uh, I feel, I just feel sad. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's something I'm really uh, nervous about because I'm like, I don't want that. I want people to laugh. So I kind of like that my friend was like, those are really funny. And then he was like, uh, oh, are, also, are you okay? I was <laughs> like, I'm glad that his first reaction was, those are so funny because that's that's my hope. No, I don't want people to be like, are you okay, Kirsten? <laughs> I want people to be like, ah, ha, ha. <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it is a fine line because truth plus pain equals comedy. But mm-hmm. how much of the truth and how much of the pain is the perfect balance to get that comedy? Mm-hmm. I was experiencing a very similar situation when I first started taking improv classes and was questioning what was funny to me and to the world and... and I went through a a similar journey, just pushing myself into like, whatever, just start saying things like honest things and talked about, made made some pretty dark jokes because I, I think I have a very dark sense of humor sometimes too, where even just talking about my own depression and my own anxiety, um, in a room where it's like, I don't know any of these people and it's all new to me. And I remember a lot of it hit, um, some people came up to me afterwards as well. I was like, cool. Like hey, let's talk about it. I have personal things too to say, which is a weird experience. But I also had my coach once come up to me and be like, 
that was sad. Did you realize that something you said was very sad? <laughs> like, yeah. oh, and I wasn't actually seeing that. I didn't notice that there was, you know, a perfect balance for particular audiences, which you read on a night-to-night basis or yeah. a stage-to-stage basis. Um, like we said, comedy is very particular. It's subjective. Mm-hmm. But I think that um, when you break it down into the reasons of why you're doing it, you know, like when you focus in on the, the, well, this is what I'm getting out of it. I love the fact that you're digging into that because mm-hmm. that's something that I've always found. In, well, I come back to it, I find. It's important for me and I keep coming back to it. Yeah. I think that it's ignorant to disregard what the audience is getting out of it or the fact that it is your job and you're not take it seriously. Yeah. You know, it's comedy to take comedy seriously like that in um, in your own regards. Yeah. I love that. And some of the, I mean, some of the stuff that I love the most, the style of stuff that I love the most kind of lives in that, like, um, like Liar Liar? No. In a... <laughs> Titanic Lady? Um, it turns like oh, it's mine. Yes, yes, yes. So there's a movie for me that I find quite funny in a lot of ways, but heartbreaking in a lot of ways. And for me, that that sort of movie, or like even kind of where like I mean, Orphan Black is also a bit of sci-fi, but there is so much comedy in that show as well as drama. Mm-hmm. And um, and girls to an extent, though I'm not the hugest fan of that show, I think that show rise that line as well of this sort of like. Uh, a perfect example: the Duplass brothers, uh, the Skeleton Twins, with Kristen Wiig and um, yeah. uh, Bill Hader and Owen Wilson. Uh, that movie, I was just like, this is the one of the most perfect lines of how I love comedy and drama to be uh, teetering on mm-hmm. that I've ever seen. Like, and I think I connect a lot more to that sort of work than to like I love Bro- Bro- Brooklyn Nine Nine, but it is pure slapstick comedy, mm-hmm. and I fucking love that. But I think um, my heart is really in more of that stuff that's <clears throat> a little more mixture, mm-hmm. a little more laugh cryy, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, that's the stuff that I really, really like. Those are the scenes that the, the scenes that I wrote with Second City that were like that will stay with me forever. Mm-hmm. I think, as opposed to the slapstick. Yeah, yeah, which I also love. I will roll around on that stage as much as possible. Like yeah. I, I like that's all I ever wanted was to be like rolling around on that stage. <laughs> um, like how can I make a scene where I cover every inch? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my pitch. Touch all of the walls and drink <laughs> all of the beers. Lee, Cameron, and I were constantly trying to pitch scenes where we drink beers. <laughs> she got into it a little more than I did near the end. She's like, I have a long <laughs> straw. And I stick it into the audience's drink. So I was like, this is amazing. (laughs) So it's our plan to get free alcohol all night long. (laughs) Become a comedian. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's amazing. If you could create, let's let's say uh, as our closing comments, if you could create the ultimate show, Mm -hmm. either stage or screen, Mm -hmm. um, that you could star in, where would you want to put yourself? I think I'm really fascinated by female relationships, and I think we're seeing that in shows right now already, but I think that's something that I'm really, um, that is a huge part of my life. I, uh, I grew up the youngest of four. My brother's the oldest, but then there's two sisters and then me, and um, yeah, I, I just, the relationship with my sisters is something that has always fascinated me because we're so close and we're so similar, and for that reason, and we're very close in age as well, and for that reason, um, it's a relationship that I just, find endlessly interesting and fascinating and I would love to I would love to write something about that 
um, about uh, female relationships, whether sisters or that or those friendships that can kind of mirror that sister-like feeling mm-hmm. of when you're so close with friends like that. Um, and yeah, and sort of the different sort of the different sort of friendships that one gets. And also, I've moved to so many different cities, and I feel like every time I move. Um, there's that feeling of like, oh, I really need to build up my female friends. And as you get older, how much harder that gets. Oh. Um, and I think it's that's true. something that I w- would love to write about as well. And I've talked about that with some friends, some other friends as well, who it's like, yeah, like finding other female friends in your 30s and what that's like. It's like almost dating. Like, and now there is. There's apps for it. There's apps for finding friends. What? Yeah. And it's like like a Tinder, but for finding female friends. And I'm just like, that's amazing because it's something that I think about all the time because it is, it's harder. We're not in university or like, you know, or even like, I am just more shut off now. If I, even if I go to a yoga class, which I never do, I do it at home. Um, <laughs> I do it at home. Uh, uh, but yeah, we clarify that. It's like harder to, it's just harder to connect with people. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's something that I'm interested in. Well, I hope you are writing it, and I hope it is going to come out soon. <laughs> I want to see more female roles out there, strong, hilarious female roles. Yeah. And if it's coming from your voice, I know it'll be genius. I do have a web series. Um, it's called Healing from Heartbreak. Um, I play a man in it. Amazing. <laughs> I play as this character that kept coming up for him, and I fell in love with him because he's a very sad character. And, and to talk about what we were talking about, I guess, the sort of line between sadness and comedy is this, this uh, web series walks on it and uh, I guess we'll see whether or not it walks on it well um, <laughs> but it's about a, a middle-aged man who's just gone through his uh, divorce and he's trying to kind of get back on his feet so it's like a self-help um, uh, web series called Healing from Heartbreak. It's been amazing sitting and chatting with you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you for taking the time. I will definitely want to come back and check in with you once you have a uh, cool. show Sweet. up on, online. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. And we're back in the Whatnock studio. P-Money, this hyperactive puppy, has calmed down a little bit. She's just chewing away a hole through this blanket. Not sure where that is, but I'm just going to keep doing that. But, Tanya, you just, you just got back from set. Yes. You were away for, what, a week? Two Two weeks. Mm-hmm. You were shooting a, a show here in Toronto. Mm-hmm. The Good Witch. The Good you Witch. You to talk about that? I, I guess. Well, yeah. I guess I just I just brought it up. So I'm allowed to talk about it. I probably can't say what happens, but cool, cool, cool. Well, yeah. before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about um, the different sort of acting that was required from you on set. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting to hear you talk about the difference between this. Hallmark style of acting as opposed to the HBO style of acting that you were giving the director uh, paralleled with Kirsten talking about straight versus comedic acting. Mm -hmm. So what do you first of all mean by Hallmark versus HBO acting? Um, Hallmark is very lighthearted. It's very loving. Um, There's no conflict. You have to be likable in all cases as HBO is there is conflict. You're you're allowed to fight. You're allowed to be ugly. But at least from what I get, when I'm being told to stop acting like an HBO show, <laughs> right? So the conflict is supposed to be in the storyline, as opposed to showing up as anger and yeah. something that makes you less likable as a character. Mm-hmm. It's not just arguing with each other. Let yeah. the conflict live in in the story and be bright, happy, shiny characters. Mm-hmm. But 
a little bit troubled by maybe somebody else's actions. I guess so. Yeah. yeah. I'm still trying to wrap my head around it a little bit. <laughs> so they asked you to be less ugly on set. They they asked me to be likable. Okay. Well, that was very rude of me. Or less ugly, yes. I mean, <laughs> I've got a face for radio, what can I say? Hey, that's why we're doing a podcast. Hey, not pretty enough, not skinny enough. Not pretty enough, not ugly enough, not skinny enough, not fat enough, you know. I wonder how our voices come across. You know, are we not nasally enough? Are we not pronounced enough? Like that episode of Friends when Phoebe wants to be sick so she can sing Smelly Cat with that raspy voice. <sighs> yeah, and you're sick right now. I was sick for last episode. One of us will always have sicky, sexy voice. Just always waiting for you. We're so sick for you. Smelly cat. You're welcome, world. Oh, man. I think we need to clarify straight versus comedic acting because I didn't know what that was until you told me. Right. So, I mean, even within the straight version of acting, you obviously have subdivisions of Hallmark versus HBO. Different styles of acting. The difference, I guess you could say, between straight acting and comedic acting is that with straight acting, you're not always looking for that laugh. You're not always just sometimes forcing material towards that end goal. So, for instance, while you were on Good Witch, as you were delivering your lines, you're not constantly listening to hear the cameraman giggle. That your goal isn't to hear those laughs. It's not written like a sitcom where structurally every page necessitates, you know, at least three jokes. Yeah. It's, it's a narrative story that is dramatic and you play for the storyline. Instead of the laughs. Yeah. And yeah. it's not to say that comedic acting is um, that you won't also see some grounded scene work out there. That's, that's you obviously... You some beautiful scene work in comedies. Yeah. I think the most convincing and the funniest pieces are those that are played grounded. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's fun to go wild on stage and be hammy and and play characters that you would never believably play in a feature film or a television series, uh, unless you were covered in makeup, you know? Uh, Like People of Earth with uh, Ken Hall, he literally does not look like himself. He's an alien. I haven't seen it. I'll have to watch that. I actually haven't seen many of it either. (laughs) I have seen promos, and I watched them when they were on Conan, (laughs) but uh, I haven't actually watched the episodes yet, so... I am so sorry, Ken, if you're listening to this. I'm <laughs> going to go home and watch it tonight. We just had to switch rooms because poor little Penny would just not shut the fuck up. She got a second win from that Red Bull. Yeah. Note to self, don't spill Red Bull on the floor. Or at least grab towels quicker so that dogs can't lap it up. <laughs> Back to the point. I like the idea of stage comedy and being able to get into the mess of it and play characters that nobody would ever cast me as. Not to say that I don't love being cast in somebody else's writing. Yeah, because, I mean, we're all about finding our own, own voice, but when you're casting a part, do you really have a say exactly how you want that character to be played? I mean, yeah, you, you, were, you were cast upon that part because of how you played it, but like you were saying earlier, I had to change the way I was playing it for this role. Yeah, how much of that character is your own voice? Yeah, because in the back of my head, I wanted to play it a completely different way, but I couldn't. Were you frustrated with that? A little bit, but it, it was a learning curve. It was, uh, thank God for classes, because that's what you learn in class, right? Is you go big, 
and then they can downplay you. Mm-hmm. They can bring you down, and that's exactly what I did, but it, it was kind of frustrating because you're learning in a certain way, you're practicing a certain way, and then you're like, you go on set and you're like, oh, well, that is not at all how I pictured it. Do you rehearse your scenes to a point of knowing, you know, what word you're saying as you're telling your shoe, or what you feel exactly in each moment? Like, is it is it robotic for you in a sense at all? No, I, I um, at least doing this one, the scripts were being changed and rechanged. Like, I was on double version goal, which is a lot of versions. Yeah. Of, of, <laughs> yeah, right? For our so, listeners who are in the entertainment industry, uh, every version, every time you do a rewrite on a script, it turns a different color. And getting to gold is pretty far down, a double version gold is pretty double. far down the line. Yeah, so I mean, there are rewrites and rewrites, and there's even one time when we were on set and we had to rewrite a whole scene because the leading actress was very sick and couldn't be there, so we were on the spot rewriting a whole scene. So it's like, I, I, I at least from this one, I've learned you don't want to memorize it word for word. It's more, for me, it's more the emotion and the feeling behind it and listening to everyone else, which helps you react. That's interesting because some writers will be offended if you do not get the words precisely as they wrote them. But then there are other sets where, yeah, it is so valuable and that's where your improv skills have to kick in and just Mm -hmm. knowing how to be in that moment, knowing where you sit in the story and what your character is supposed to do at that point from a to B, like what sort of change you offer to that storyline. Yeah. I had a similar experience with one of the indie films that James Franco shot up here. It was really interesting to, I was a minor character in the film, but it was interesting to watch how their team works together. He works with the same DP and producer, his couple of team members that they do regular work with together. Did you find a lot in that industry? Yeah, but it was, I found how necessary it was for them to work collaboratively. Because you get that niche, you get that... Yeah, they knew how one another worked and they were a well-oiled machine. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, James loves to go off script and (laughs) having, like, forget trying to even color code the scripts. Sides, another thing, we show up to set and like, did you rehearse your lines? Doesn't matter. Throw them away and we're going to do 20 minute takes of improvised material, which was, it was so fun. It was cool to have that freedom, but geez, I just feel really bad for whoever has to edit that in the end. <laughs> but it was really cool to see how the cinematographer, the DP, was so talented to be able to catch all these balls that his teammates are throwing at him and be able to still make it look aesthetically beautiful and mm-hmm. and to also, I believe he's part of the editing team, to be able to tell a cohesive story in the end. <laughs> yeah. Stitch that together. That was really cool. Yeah. I can't imagine having that kind of a method on television work. It was definitely not to that extreme. And I hope not. <laughs> I mean, for all those newcomer actors out there, memorize your lines, know your shit. Oh yeah. I mean, that's this that's coming from people who've been in the industry for years on years on years. But I, by all means, every audition I go to, I know my lines backwards, upside down, in French. Well, not really, maybe German, but probably not. But you know, just know yeah. your shit. You learn it in different languages. Oh, don't I don't know. That's like half Chinese. 
Uh, um, <laughs> not even, not even close. That offended so uh, many different cultures. <laughs> but yeah, no, um, I couldn't imagine to that extent of improvisation that you were doing, um, James Franco's. But yeah, no, I mean, finding your voice is interesting when it's not your own work. Yeah. Well, it's nice to work with people who give you the space, because that doesn't happen very often. Mm-hmm. It's nice to work with people who you feel safe enough to do that. I mean, I did have moments at first where it's like, oh, yeah, we're allowed to? Oh my god, this is amazing. And then once once we had been on set for a couple of days and we all got that rhythm and um, had that trust with one another, it was, it was that magic. Yeah. It, it was those moments that you don't typically get to experience in film and television. I, it was moments that I got to experience on stage as an improviser, mm-hmm. but then shifting that into television work, oh, I love it. Because if it's not your own writing, like you said, if it's not your own voice, sometimes you, you do just have to let go of a lot more of yourself and mm-hmm. step a little bit more fully into another character, another body, another entity, another energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can hear the dog whining a little bit on the outside of the office. <laughs> it breaks my heart, but we'll talk for another couple of minutes and then we'll just go play with the puppy. <laughs> being yourself, speaking of, of having your own voice and being able to fully express your own artist, your own voice and your own message, to do that takes an insane amount of vulnerability. Oh yeah. That's not easy. So even when you do have that space to be able to to get into a place where you feel free enough to be that vulnerable. That's where the sweet spot lives. That's where the magic happens. But in order to get there, you still have to get yourself out of the potential ruts or the obstacles, like the ugly places, the messy stuff. Yeah, like how do you make sure that messy stuff is something that you enjoy rolling around in as opposed to making it a fearful thing? Which Pearson has done so well, making the messy stuff funny. Well, we all have messy stuff. <laughs> and I think... Sorry, mind and gutter. <laughs> to get... Yeah, to, to... Kirsten is just one of those natural talents, not only natural talents, but somebody who's been working her ass off for years to be able to make it look so easy. Because... Not only to be vulnerable enough to put yourself up on stage and just share those moments to make other people laugh, but then whatever sort of reaction does come back to you, like Kirsten talks about somebody calling her crazy, which we mentioned in our last episode when somebody uh, spoke about me in a way where it was, oh, I didn't know that Kelly had a mental illness, or I can't remember exactly what it was that he said, but whatever it is that others now feel about you how they are judging you yeah you're putting yourself up on that stage to be judged that in itself is crazy so i think being an artist doesn't necessarily just necessitate having an awareness of where you blend and where you have those boundaries between um what you practice in the classroom and how you present yourself on the streetcar but also protecting yourself when you're bringing true vulnerable material into your art i think it's a cyclical experience where you always need to keep yourself in check as Mm -hmm. to how much of your art bleeds over into your life and how much of your life bleeds over into your art and how that can perpetuate into a 
<laughs> artist's lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going down the rabbit hole and being oh crazy. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> I think it's so easy to go into those very confusing places, those ugly places that we were talking about where you find yourself spiraling and wondering, okay, which part is the art and which part is the life? How do I keep that separate? Yeah, the happy medium kind of separation. Even in this space, in the WhatNot studio, right now, what is this conversation? We talk about mental health and being aware of finding balances in every place of your life when it comes to your work life, when it comes to your family life, when it comes to your social life and your personal life. Finding balance in all those areas, and we talk about it, from our own personal approaches in the entertainment industry because that's what we know. This is still a space of entertainment. This is a form of entertainment, the podcast. So even though we're speaking about very true experiences and keeping everything, you know, we're not doing this for laughs. We don't ham this up. These are grounded conversations that we're holding. But we're just funny. We cannot help that everyone laughs. As they listen to us. Maybe it's not because we're funny. <laughs> oh, not at all. They're just laughing at us. Oh, my best. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, it makes me wonder what this is. Is this work? Is this real life? Is this just a moment of reflection? Is this art? What are we doing here, Tanya? What is life? What are we doing? We're just babbling about crappy things in life that everyone thinks about and we just want to say it out loud so everyone knows that it's okay to think that way. At least I think so. That's kind of the reason why I wanted to do something like this is just have a safe space for us to bitch and complain about all the things that no one ever really wants to bitch and complain about. I'm just here to tell you. <laughs> I hope when people laugh. <laughs> oh, At our misfortune? What? What are we doing? <laughs> That's comedy. You know what we're doing? We are sharing ways to cope. <laughs> yeah. Which is going to bring us into our one cool thing. Hey. So I don't really, I mean, it's pretty cool to me, but um, so I see a sleep doctor because I used to have really bad anxiety. It's getting a lot better. Um, but uh, he has this machine. It's like a brainwave machine thing. And you, you sit in this chair. It's like a machat. It's like a mas- massage chair. That's real massage. I want to hear the massage chair. So it's a massage chair. Yeah. And um, like you put these headphones on and it's this lady talking about like you almost feel like you're in a different universe because there's like that weird like like university music. I don't know like alien music. The intro to Twilight Zone? Pretty much or like the intro to Star Wars or you know going back on track. So anyway so you sit in this chair and it's like a massage chair and it like Gives you these crazy vibrations into your body, but at the same time, you're listening to these mantras and all these positive thinking things. And it's just, as my sleep doctor said, it, it helps calm your brain waves to think about the now and the happiness of what you're doing. And you can't always be happy, of course, but it's just pretty much a chair of positive vibes. <laughs> that is Cool. So yeah, it was really cool. There, it's a massage chair. It vibrates so that physically, it's your whole body, like from the inside, is like shaking. Why is that supposed to be a positive it's, experience? It's supposed to 
awaken like electric not electrocute but like awaken the the atoms from inside and like just give that you know like the sound wave that um I guess that's our first episode rose yeah. the sound bowl oh so kind of like that kind of vibration the peacefulness you get from that that's what it's doing on the inside is it's giving you that vibration on the inside like a peace vibration very it's waking up your body. Yeah, like, it's hey, waking up your body and giving you like this positive vibe. And I don't know, I call it the positive chair, and it was really cool. <laughs> that sounds so fascinating. That actually makes me think of uh, a particular acting technique that I just learned about. I haven't actually practiced it yet, but I met an acting coach out in Vancouver while I was out there for the Whistler Film Festival, and she is coming to Toronto in the spring. So we'll be sure to share her information when she does. But when you talk about the vibrations in your body, and please excuse me if I don't get all of this description accurate, because I haven't learned it yet, but basically what she teaches is a method of acting that stems from PTSD therapy. Okay. She talks about how your muscles can do one of three things. They can either contract, relax, or tremor. And by, say, contracting the muscles in your palm and trying to relax the muscles in your forearm at the same time, it will create a tremor in your arm. By creating those vibrations in your body, by shaking up the atoms, it actually, on a psychosomatic level, tricks your brain into thinking that it is back in a state of trauma. And by bringing you back to that state and then, say, listening to positive affirmations in those moments or retraining your brain to deal with those tremors, that trauma, or using different techniques that I have not learned yet to retrain your brain to deal with traumatic experience in general um, and maybe in therapeutically in specific ways, but being able to essentially over time breaking down barriers that we've built up. So in terms of therapy, being able to break through whatever is causing you anxiety or whatever past traumatic experience has brought you to a state of anxiety. Um, And for actors, being able to break through those barriers that we have in order to live in the now and to just make those choices without having those emotional blocks. I don't know if that relates, if the physical vibrations... yeah, in a sense, because, yeah, those physical vibrations are supposed to, yeah, kind of just... Wake up the neurons in your body? Yeah, I get... You got real excited about that. Neurons! (laughs) It's not the same chair. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds sounds like it might be a similar experience. Mm -hmm. That sounds really cool. I want to... She told me she's going to let me know when she's back in town, so I'll pass along the information. Cool. I will be posting some information about that sleep doctor, the name of Dr. Muller, um, but we will put some more information on the site about him. Yeah, we'll have all this information in the show notes. One last thing that I do want to throw out there is more so of a question to our female audience members, because something that stuck with me from my conversation with Kirsten was the idea of how hard it is to make female friends especially at this age and especially in the city, you know, it's not an easy thing. So it would be cool to have, I don't know what they're called these days, a bubble or Tinder for friends. I think she mentioned that there is an app sort of like that. Or 
do like a speed dating thing, except like speed friending, where like exactly. there's like fifty girls and you just sit in rows and you're like, yeah, you're cool. Yeah. So no judging maybe. allowed, though. <laughs> we have rules to our meetups. Damn it! <laughs> if you're gonna be my friend, here are my rules. Why don't we? <laughs> our first event was a yoga class. Mm-hmm. If enough female audience members are interested. We should just have a gal pal meetup, a speed dating girlfriend zone. So, like, comment, share, let us know if you want us to host a speed dating event for girls. Just finding some friends out there. This is not to exclude anybody else. It's just a cool idea. Maybe we'll hold some more for men and for transgender and for... No, we're not a dating service, and I don't know how I'm... (laughs) This is just a one idea put out there if people are interested in this maybe we'll have a get together let's bring all of our friends together we'll just have a friend swap a friend swap i like it it's starting to sound more more like human trafficking not what we're getting at so (laughs) either yell at us or tell us that you want something like that yell at us or tell at us yell at us or tell at us thank you so much for tuning in to our third episode of we're totally not okay that's okay have fun till next time, kids. Cute. Bye. <laughs>